Father, we thank you that we can be here this morning, Lord, not just meeting with each other, but most amazingly, meeting with you. And Lord, we thank you that you've already been, you are with us, you have been ministering to us, encouraging us, caring for us, reassuring us that you are for us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do the same with even greater power as we come to your word now. Lord, would you help us to listen well? Would you help us to sit under your word, recognizing that it's you that's speaking? And we pray, Lord, that we might be changed as we encounter you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, clothing styles, as you may have noticed, quickly go in and out of fashion. Um, Year by year, clothes that were once in disappear from the high street. And I apologize ahead of time if... As I list a few things, whether anybody is wearing any of these still today, uh, but let's just think about some of the, the uh, fashion adventures of the past. Uh, we had bell bottoms. Anyone remember bell bottoms? Only a few. Okay. There you go. Back in. Seriously. Wow. Scratch it. Okay. I had tie-dye t-shirts on here, and then I was told they were back in as well. Uh, jumpsuits. <laughs> Very, no, this is awful. Very baggy jeans. No, there you go. Uh, Shell suits, they're never coming back in. They were a fire hazard. Bowler hats, maybe shoulder pads. (laughs) Leg warmers. MC hammer trousers. Anyone ever have a pair of those? They were great. Socks and sandals. I don't think they were ever in, but... Outfits that were in one year are completely outdated the next. But in our passage this morning, we're going to read about a piece of clothing that never goes out of fashion in God's eyes. In fact, this piece of clothing is one that always catches his attention and blessing. So uh, let's read 1 Peter 5, 5 to 7, to find out exactly what this piece of clothing is. It's God's word. Oh, I've lost my... uh... There we go. Okay, starting halfway through verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I've called this morning's message the blessings of humility, and I've called it that For two reasons. Firstly, because as you can see, the clothing that never goes out of fashion in God's eyes is this very special character trait called humility. And secondly, because in these verses, Peter not only calls us to put on humility, he's also eager to tell us about the promised blessings that humility brings. And these these two elements are woven together repeatedly throughout these three verses the call to humility, and then the promise of blessing that comes with it. The the call and the promise, they're inseparably entwined, as we'll see. And we're going to look look at the passage under three headings. First of all, the call to pursue humility. Then the call to humbly serve one another. And finally, the call to humbly trust God. So first of all, number one, the call to pursue humility. Now, all that Peter writes in these three verses flows out of that one Old Testament quote at the end of verse 5. Did you see it there with the little quotation marks in the passage? 
Uh, that verse is the source of his stream of thought. And so that's where we're going to begin. It's, he says, he quotes, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now this verse, which is taken from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, is uh, it's an antithetical promise, which don't worry if you don't know what that means. It simply means it's like a double-sided coin, or it's like a, the two sides of a seesaw. On the one hand, God promises to oppose the proud, and on the other hand, he promises to give grace to the humble. So let's think about each side of the seesaw in turn. First of all, God opposes the proud. Now, pride is a universal human problem. We might say it's really the essence of all our sin. Left to ourselves, we each want to be the center of our own universe. We want to be independent of God. We contend for supremacy with God. We live in proud opposition to God. But, says Peter, what we need to realize is that the opposition is mutual. Just as the proud set themselves against God, so God sets himself against the proud. God opposes the proud. Let's just think about what that means for a moment. It means that pride is deadly. To puff ourselves up with pride is to go to war with God. To exalt ourselves in God's place is to make God our enemy. Pride rightly brings about God's displeasure. He hates pride with a holy hatred as well he should. But that means that left unchecked, pride leads ultimately to our destruction. So we might ask, well, who in their right mind would choose to be proud if that's the case? But unfortunately, as sinful human beings, none of us are in our right minds. Our pride blinds us to the truth. None of us are immune. It is utter madness to be proud, and yet all of us to succumb to the madness in countless ways every day. We're in trouble. But there's a great ray of hope here for those who are willing to see that they are in trouble. Peter wants to remind us of the other side of the equation. That as surely as God opposes the proud, just as surely he gives grace to the humble. This truth, this promise, runs through every page of the Bible, even more prominently than the first. God is against the proud, but he loves to lavish his grace upon the humble. Again and again, the Bible tells us that God is decisively drawn to humility. Humility draws his attention like a magnet. It attracts his unmerited grace. Isaiah 62 verse 2 says, this is God speaking, he says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 57 verse 15 tells us that God revives the lowly and the contrite. James 4 verse 8 says he draws near and dwells with the humble. Jesus told his listeners in the, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that God lifts up and justifies the one who humbly asks for mercy. Luke 18 verse 14, this is what Jesus says. 
He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life are all freely given to those who humble themselves before God. And as the tax collector shows us, true humility begins with coming to God and asking him to have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, this is where humility begins for you. Please don't go away thinking that this morning's message is essentially go and be a humbler kind of person out there in the world. Humility begins with repentance before God, with recognizing our need of a Savior and throwing ourselves on Christ to be rescued and forgiven. There is no greater blessing than the one you'll receive from God the very moment that you turn from sin to Jesus to be saved. But what about for those of us who've already done that and who, by God's immeasurable grace, sit here this morning forgiven and saved through Jesus? What promise do these words hold out to us? Well, these words that Peter quotes in verse 5 though they were penned some 3,000 years ago, whenever it was that uh, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, are written in the present tense, which tells us that just as surely as God is still opposing the proud today, so he continues to give fresh grace to the humble each and every day. So I think there's a double incentive for us as Christians to practice and grow in humility uh, as as those whom God has saved we want to be against what he is against and love what he loves. To, we want to hate pride and love humility just as he does. But don't we also want to experience more of the rich blessings that humility brings? Don't we want to experience more of God's grace? More of the grace that he gives and bestows on the humble. And God is certainly eager this morning. He's led us to this passage. He is eager this morning that we would enjoy more of humility's blessings in our lives. So how can we pursue the kind of humility that draws God's attention and favor each day? Well, first of all, and this is now our second point, first of all, by humbly serving one another. The call to humbly serve one another. Look at verse 5 again. Clothe yourselves all of you, with humility towards one another. The thing about pride is that it doesn't just affect our attitude towards God, it also affects our attitude towards other people. When we're proud, we generally look down on others and we think of ourselves as better than them. Even if we don't verbalize it, we don't share it with people, we consider ourselves perhaps either more knowledgeable, uh, more able, better looking, more successful, wiser, more impressive, or perhaps sometimes even more humble than the people around us. Humility, on the other hand, is an attitude that puts others first, which considers considers the desires and the needs and the ideas and the opinions of others as more worthy of attention than our own. Now, I'll just say, humility is not about being um, utterly consumed with how awful we are then we're still focused on ourselves. True humility takes a sober look at ourselves, recognizing our sin, 
Then it takes a grateful look at Jesus who saves us from our sin. And then with joy, we set our sights on God and other people. We set our minds on service. Actually, the word that Peter uses for humility in verse 5 describes a person who willingly serves, even in the lowliest tasks. It's not a character trait that the world we live in today often values. And in the first century pagan world that Peter was writing into, this was a character trait that was utterly detested. People saw humility as a sign of weakness and cowardice, unworthy of a free and a civilized person. Humility was only to be tolerated in those who were slaves. And yet, in spite of what the world thinks, Peter calls his readers to clothe themselves from head to toe with this trait, to surround themselves with humility on every side, to put it on like a garment so that it covers and shapes all that we think and say and do. And perhaps, I think most likely, Peter has in his mind Jesus' own example of humility in John chapter 13, when Jesus literally clothed himself with a servant's towel to wash his disciples' feet. And having washed their feet, and remember Peter was, Peter was there, having his feet washed and listening. Having done it, Jesus said to them, uh, this is John 13 from verse 12, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Peter's simply repeating what Jesus first taught and did. And actually what we find when we look through the Gospels at Jesus is that his idea of greatness is utterly different to the world's idea of greatness. In Mark chapter 10, verse 43, he says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This turns on its head the world's idea of greatness. True greatness is not found in serving yourself, promoting yourself, pushing others out of the way to exalt yourself. No, Jesus says true greatness is found in serving others for the glory of God. But more than that, it tells us that the call for you and I to give our lives away for others begins with the unique life-giving sacrifice of God's own Son for us. Left to ourselves, we would forever be slaves to pride and slaves to selfish ambition. Only the sinless Son of God, dying on the cross as a ransom for many, could secure our forgiveness and free us from the prison of our pride. Apart from his sacrifice, there would be no humble-hearted servant Christians. But having saved us and raised us to new life with him, now every follower of Jesus is called to clothe themselves with the same humility that our master wore. 
And the call here, notice, is to every single follower, every single Christian. Humility is not just something that some Christians do and others don't have to. No matter our age, our role, our experience, or our gifts, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. We all still struggle with pride. We all need to keep putting on humility. We're all called to imitate our Savior and become a servant just like him. Servants at home, in our community, in our friendship groups, in our places of work. We're to become servants of all Humility is our calling wherever we are. And yet here in verse 5, Peter is especially calling for humility in the church. When he says one another, he's talking particularly about fellow Christians in the local church. So let's ask the question, if humility is our calling wherever we go, why is humility in the church amongst us, between God's people, especially significant? Why should we give it our special attention? Well, three reasons um, come particularly to my mind. First of all, by definition, a church ought to be a gathering of the humble. Every believer is, by definition, aware of their sin and their need. We all should be convinced that we are sinners in need of a saviour. We're Christians because we've humbly asked God to forgive us and rescue us through Christ. But of course, as we all know, belief and conviction doesn't always lead to consistent practice. So the second reason we need to intentionally wrap ourselves in humility in the church is because it's still not our natural default setting, though God is at work in us to increasingly make it so. Right now, if we come together and we only speak and act according to our instincts, we just follow what our hearts tell us about how to relate to each other, we'll find ourselves, more often than not, knee-deep in our pride, in arguments and divisions, in infighting, envy and competition. It takes continual effort to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another, to practice grace and love in all of our dealings. In fact, that that phrase, clothe yourself, is... uh, in something called the active imperative, which simply means humility doesn't happen automatically. We're called to actively position ourselves in the place of costly service, not just to wait for it to happen to us or for someone to ask us to serve them. We're to give ourselves to it with great enthusiasm. I wonder perhaps that's why Peter uses the clothing imagery. Clothing is something that you have to choose to put on every day, and so likewise is humility. If we're passive about getting dressed in the morning, we will end up walking the streets naked. And if we're passive about putting on humility in the church, then we'll end up more often than not relating to other people with bare, naked pride. And that's not a pretty sight either. The third reason I think that we need to especially pursue humility in the church is because God's promise to bless the humble applies to whole churches too. God blesses humble Christians, and he also blesses humble churches, not by making us rich, but by using us to richly bless others. So, for instance, humble churches are generous churches, like the Macedonian church that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Humble churches are countercultural churches, powerfully displaying the life-changing gospel before a watching world. 
Humble churches are united churches where we show by our love for each other that we really are Christ's disciples. Matthew Henry once said, Humility is the great preserver of peace and order in all Christian churches. And Tom Schreiner similarly says, Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. So we need humility in the church. Clothing ourselves with it isn't easy, but it is vital. And there are just so many incentives here for us to keep on pursuing and growing in it together. So let's, let's each make the effort to reflect on our attitudes and our actions towards one another, to ask ourselves, does the way I think about others in the church, the way I treat them, the way I talk to them or about them, does it reveal a proud or a humble heart? Do I count others as more significant than myself? Am I prepared to be their servant? Am I clothed in humility when I'm with them? When I talk with them, am I trying to impress them or encourage them? Do I listen more than I speak? Am I looking for an opportunity to rattle off my achievements? Or am I looking to identify evidences of God's work in their life? Am I willing to serve them in practical and non-glamorous, messy ways? Am I willing to serve when no one else notices the good that I'm doing? Humility in our relationships is never easy, but it is most certainly possible through God who gives us grace. He promises to give, us, give grace to the humble, and if we humbly ask him, he will give us grace to grow in humility itself, to grow in humbly serving one another. And then the second way that Peter invites us to pursue the kind of humility that draws God's attention and draws his blessing each day is through, and this is the third point, the call to humbly trust God. Look at this, six, where Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Here now Peter turns from our attitude towards each other to address our attitude towards God himself. And his particular focus here is on how we respond to the various trials and challenges that life in a fallen world inevitably brings us. When we suffer, do we rant and rave against God? Do we run away from him in despair? Or do we humbly trust God in the midst of life's storms? Under God's mighty hand, that, that phrase that Peter uses is an Old Testament expression, pops up a lot, that speaks of God's power to protect and intervene for the sake of his people. It's not a picture of being squashed or crushed by God, but of taking refuge under his hand for shelter. It's a picture of very real uh, and present blessing. His hand is his protective power. It's like a canopy over those who trust him a refuge under the shadow of his wings. There is, in fact, no safer place to be in all of the universe than under God's mighty hand. And so Peter's telling his readers, when they meet with hardships, the path of humility is not found in raging against God or in running from life's difficulties. It is found in trusting God's power to protect us in our trials. And we trust, too, that one day that same strong hand will lift us up, precisely because we sought refuge in him now. 
what verse 6 is saying. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. The God who raised Christ from the grave and exalted him into heaven will not fail at the proper time to exalt all who humble themselves and seek refuge in him. One day believers will be lifted on high by God's grace forever. Glory will replace all of our present trials and difficulties. William Harrell, a commentator on 1 Peter, writes, Paradoxically, we learn that our highest blessing comes to us as we humble ourselves under the hand of God. This is because the desire of God's heart is to give grace to the humble. God's hand is ever at work, therefore, not in pressing down the lowly, but in lifting them up. The petty and tenuous heights that we can attain by our own proud efforts cannot compare with the towering peaks of enduring glory to which the hand of God will exalt us. But that time is not yet. Our exaltation awaits the day when Christ returns. The question is, do we trust God to get us there? Do we trust him to get us to our glorious destination? Uh, many of us, I think, now use sat-navs on a regular basis. If you're like me, you use it to get to places you even know where to go. It's just habit. When we set out on a journey, perhaps to somewhere where we don't know how to get there, we generally trust our sat-navs. We trust our sat-navs to lead us along the route. We know where we want to go to, but we don't know the route to get there, and so we trust our sat-nav. We make lefts and rights. We head down bumpy, winding roads that we've never explored before through towns and villages that we didn't know existed, all because we trust our sat-nav. But don't we have far more reason to trust God to lead us to our final destination? our final exalted destination. No matter how bumpy or winding the route may be, sat-navs sometimes get the route wrong. But God never leads your life down a single wrong turn. So in humility, we can bow to his wisdom. We can entrust our lives to him, accepting the twists and the turns of his providence because he's promised both to protect us on the journey and to one day lead us to our exalted destination, our eternal home with him. But Peter's not finished yet. Not only does he call us to humbly entrust ourselves to God, he also explains in very practical terms how to do it. By, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. I love this verse. This is a wonderfully rich verse. The first thing we see in it is that here is a confirmation that every Christian struggles with anxiety in various times and in various ways. Matthew Henry once said, the best of Christians are apt to labor under the burden of anxious and excessive care. So be reassured this morning, you are not odd if you have worries and concerns. And it's a big, broad word too, anxieties, encompassing all of our worries, our fears, discontentment, discouragement, despair, questioning, and pain. Matthew Henry goes on, the cares of the Christian are various and of more sorts than one. Personal cares, family cares, cares for the present, cares for the future, cares for themselves, for others, and for the church. 
We all wrestle with anxieties of various kinds. That in itself is not unusual. The second thing we see, though, is that it matters what we do with our anxieties. Peter instructs us in humility to take our worries to God. The third thing we see, then, is that holding on to our anxieties is an expression of pride. That's the logic of Peter's argument here. Humility compels us to cast our anxieties on God. But pride leads us to keep hold of our anxieties for ourselves. In pride, we try to carry for ourselves the concerns that ought to be entrusted to God. Now, I understand if, if maybe this is the first time you've heard that, that this might be very hard to accept. Worry is not pleasant, is it? It often brings with it painful, even paralyzing side effects. No one wants to worry. So why would we choose to keep our worries? And yet the Bible is clear. In our pride, we would still sometimes rather be paralyzed by anxious thoughts than relinquish them and entrust our anxieties to God. We prize self-sufficiency that much, even when it hurts us. We like to maintain the illusion that we're capable and we're independent, even while perhaps we're drowning under the weight of our worries. It takes real humility to admit that God is God and we are not, that we are weak and he is strong, that we are utterly dependent on him for all things. And so the fourth thing we see here is that the antidote to anxiety is not simply to believe certain truths about God. Now, maybe perhaps someone has said to you in the past, if you believe God is sovereign and good, then you simply won't be anxious. Well, that's just not true. This is about more than just believing right doctrine. This is a call to action. When you're anxious, says Peter, cast all your anxieties on God. That, that word cast is a vivid word. It's, it's like hurl. It describes earnestly hurling or throwing something over someone else. There's a big difference between believing something about God and actually giving him our cares. Just imagine a, a fisherman who goes out to catch some fish and he's, uh, well, it's not enough. He's on his boat. It's not enough to be on a boat, to own a net, to even believe that there are fish out there in the sea waiting to be caught. He needs to actually cast his nets. Peter knew the importance of actually casting nets, even when he had doubts. In Luke chapter 5, sat together in a fishing boat, Jesus said to Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Oh, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. We might hear God's command to cast our anxieties on him and feel like saying, Lord, I have been grappling with this problem all night or for weeks now, trying to find a solution, trying to make things work, trying to find some kind of relief. I've toiled all night and got nowhere with this. It's not that easy. It's a hopeless case, Lord. But like Peter, we have to be ready to respond to the Lord's words by actually casting our anxieties on him. Not second-guessing or holding on to them 
acting like God can't possibly do any more than we could do ourselves with them. That is mad. Remember, God loves to give grace to the humble. He promises to bless those who take refuge in him. He can and he will relieve us of our burden of worry, even if for the time being our circumstances remain the same. But let's take things one step further. What does this look like in practice? How do we cast our anxieties on God? See, the world around us is constantly trying to find new ways to deal with people's anxiety. They constantly need new ways because they refuse or they they don't know how to deal with anxiety God's way, which is quite simply to bring every concern and every worry to God in prayer. Prayer is humility in action. It's a living, breathing expression of our dependence on God. And I'm not talking about some kind of prepared or um, uh, focused long prayer, but throwing out with our voices to God the things that are troubling with us, throwing our anxieties upon him as he calls us to do whenever we need to. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but... In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see again as well, it's not necessarily that God will change our circumstances there and then, but the peace of God will guard our hearts. When anxious thoughts come, and sometimes they come on a minute-by-minute basis, the proper response is not to hold on to them and fret. Neither is it to deny them, ignore them, or pretend that they're not there because, you know, I'm a strong Christian and uh, I never have any worries. The only proper, humble, and wise response is to present them honestly and openly to God in prayer. And we need to do it often. C.J. Mahaney writes in his great little book, Humility, we have to focus on this frequently because we're not like cordless drills, getting charged up in the morning with enough power to last the rest of the day. We have to keep a prayerful attitude throughout the day, constantly bringing to God whatever care we encounter, whatever anxiety-producing responsibility comes our way. Now, we might say, in the midst of all of my worries... I simply don't have time to pray. But surely it's a far greater drain on our time to keep our worries to ourselves and feel ourselves being slowly crushed under them than to stop for a moment and talk to God and pray as often as we need. Uh, If you were running a a, a 10K and, and you've got a backpack on your back and every five minutes someone steps in and puts a whole new bunch of rocks in your backpack, surely it's better to keep stopping, take 30 seconds to empty those rocks onto the roadside than to just keep running on, increasingly crushed under the weight of your load. Casting all our anxieties on God in prayer takes humility, yes. It takes a moment of time, yes, but it also promises great freedom from our burdens. And this should be music to our ears this morning. We don't have to be crushed and burdened by worry. We have a God who is strong enough to bear the weight of every concern that we might ever have every single day of our lives. A God who can help us 
to humbly throw every fear and every care upon him without limit. Be confident, God says, for I can bear them all. And not only can we be confident of his power, there's something else that God wants us to be very confident of this morning. And that is that he cares for us. Here's the most, I think, compelling reason, Peter says, why you should cast all of your anxieties on God, because he cares for you. You see those words? Look at them for yourself in verse 7. Because he cares for you. We're not talking about entrusting our concerns to some unknowable, impersonal deity, but to our heavenly Father who loves us and gave his own son for us. He's not indifferent to our worries. He's not waiting to frown at us when we bring worry number 101 to him before it's even 9 a.m. in the morning. He's not just a professional removal man who says, yeah, sure, I can take your worries. I'll carry them in my van. It's my job, you know. I'm capable. It's just what I do. No, he actually cares for us. And because he cares for us, he makes our cares his concern. Even before we give them to him, your cares are his concern. William Harrell writes, We have a caring God who regards us as precious in his sight and beloved in his heart. Our Lord cares for our burdens more responsibly than we could care for them. He cares for us, however, even more than for the burdens we cast upon him. Our God watches over our welfare infinitely more than we could ever do. As we go down into true humility, we go ever more deeply into the relieving care and loving exaltation of God. Why would we not let our Heavenly Father, carry our anxieties for us. Who else are we going to depend on? Ourselves? The wisdom of the world? They, they just don't compare to the mighty God who loves us. To the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. This is a, a balm, a, a medicine for all our anxieties. The God of the universe cares personally about you and me. He cares about the things that worry us. Anxiety is a terrible thing to bear. It can make us miserable. It ties us up in knots. It can leave us gasping for breath. But worse than that, it chokes our joy, chokes our vitality, chokes our fruitfulness in living for God. None of us wants to be anxious. Well, what should breathe fresh hope into anxious hearts this morning is that God doesn't want us to be anxious either. He invites us to give them all to him. Let me finish with this. Matthew Henry uh, exhorts us. Throw your cares, which are so cutting and distracting, which wound your souls and pierce your hearts upon the wise and gracious providence of God. Trust in him with a firm, composed mind, for he cares for you. He is willing to release you of your care and take the care of you upon himself. He will either avert what you fear or support you under it. He will order all events to you so as to convince you of his paternal love and tenderness towards you. And all shall be so ordered that no hurt but good shall come unto you. We can cast our cares on God 
because he's infinitely stronger than we are. He has infinite care for us and because he's promised to work all things for good for us. And having cast our cares on him, we can calmly rest. Let's pray.